Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Marcel Petipaw. Marcel is the CEO and co-founder of Parakito, a company dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability by streamlining their operations and reporting systems. He's also the head strategic coach at SaaS Academy by Dan Martell, the number one coaching program for B2B SaaS businesses in the world. Thanks so much for being here today, Marcel. Thank you very much for having me, Diane. It's a pleasure. I am thrilled to have you here. We're going to be talking about um, data-driven systems for project estimating and forecasting. And the thing that sparked my interest about this is that I think uh, so many uh, professional firms, you know, graphic designers, marketing agencies, consultants, whatever it is, have a real problem with scope creep, right? Keep keeping that box. So uh, I am interested to learn from you about <laughs> what we're doing wrong, what we could be doing right, you know, all that fun stuff. Well, I'm excited to dive in. And you're absolutely right in that uh, this is something that a lot of firms deal with. And so, um, yeah, let's let's dive in. All right. So I want to start just by asking you, why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a number of reasons why that is. And the first is a bit of a soapbox rant for me. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons is that a lot of firms feel uh, inadequate if they're not adopting some of these, I'm going to use the term modern loosely, but these more modern pricing models that are focused on you know, value-based pricing, flat rates, flat retainers. I think that for a number of reasons, agencies and consultancies have felt compelled to move to these kinds of models, in some cases, because they're feeling pressured by their clients to take on more risk in the engagement. And I think that's a result of a lot of the erosion of our margins and a lot of downward pressure on our industry over time. And also this narrative in our industry that that is the only way to increase your profits and to scale a business is to move to these much more productized um, services. But the challenge with that is the prerequisite for that kind of a pricing change is being able to accurately scope work. And sometimes that's possible. But I think we both know that sometimes it's just not. And I don't think that we're acknowledging that adequately in the industry and saying, you know what, there are types of work that are complex, that are large-scale projects, that have a lot of uncertainty, or that require a methodology that is inherently iterative. Therefore, it would be irresponsible to try and make a whole bunch of assumptions at the start of the engagement about what's going to successfully deliver an outcome to a client or solve a problem. And therefore, that pricing model, wherein we're taking on all the risk as the firm, is probably not appropriate. But 
we've spent so much time, I think, talking about things like time materials, billing, and alternatives to that pricing model um, and why it's bad and why it's a thing of the past and why you're inadequate if you're using that, that um, agencies that really shouldn't be using that pricing model are doing it anyway, and they're ending up on the wrong side of the equation. So that's one part of it. Okay. So I, I so get that. Um being a consultant myself, like I, I can, I can totally relate to that. So, um, are there other things that are going on there? It seems to me like that that's one thing that could be going on, but there yeah. is more, what else is going on? Yeah. I mean, the other side of that is the instance where you really could be and should be containing the scope of the, the work that you do, but um, you're struggling with the operational burden of doing that, whether it's a question of properly managing expectations and scope with clients, understanding how to navigate that scope conversation based on the pricing model that's been selected, or just fundamentally being bad at estimating scope <laughs> upfront and having dysfunctional processes for doing that. And of all the things that I see, the dysfunctional process is probably one of the most common where scope and price are intrinsically linked in a way that is illogical and really doesn't change the outcome for the client at all, but sets the agency up for failure more times than not. And to give you a really direct example of what I mean by that, it's this instance where the way that we arrive at a price for a project is by saying, how many hours do we think this is going to take? Let's then multiply that uh, amount of hours by some arbitrary rate in a lot of cases that we have um, come up with by either comparing our pricing to other firms or by just using whatever the rate was that our you know firm charged that we worked at before we started our own firm. And then let's maybe apply some contingency to that, and that's the price. And then as soon as the client pushes back and says, well, I don't have the budget for that, instead of lowering the price to meet that budget or objectively decreasing the scope of the engagement in order to fit within that budget... What I see a lot of firms do is they'll go back to the estimate. They'll start decreasing the number of hours that they think it's going to take to complete the work, even though the scope <laughs> hasn't actually changed at all. <laughs> and then magically, they fall within the client's budget. And then six months later, when the engagement is over, everyone is upset because they've gone over budget. It wasn't as profitable. But of course, at that point, it's really convenient to have forgotten about the fact that you planned for that outcome at the start, but you've lied to yourself in the way that you've structured the estimate and the scope of that project. And so that kind of dysfunctional linking of scope and price can set a lot of firms up for failure and creates really bad hygiene when it comes to navigating that exercise of understanding what will be required to get this done. And then what does that actually mean for what the client's paying us? Wow. Gosh, I'm glad you gave that example. <laughs> I didn't mean to sort of chuckle about it, but yeah, we, it is exactly what it, what is happening. That is so interesting. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. So before I get into, so what do we do about this? Um, yeah. What are the sort of like symptoms that someone might be experiencing that should alert them to this idea that maybe they're not estimating and forecasting accurately? 
Yeah, there are a lot of symptoms that you might be feeling. Uh, the most common one that we see is this um, <laughs> this really punishing situation that a lot of uh, executives and founders find themselves in, where their accountant's telling them that they're overstaffed, and then their team is telling them simultaneously that they're overworked and need that we need to be hiring more people. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the ultimate outcome is the bottom line isn't as healthy as you want it to be. But now you have this dichotomy of these two completely opposite stories that you're being told by people who have varying perspectives in the agency. But you know, you're not really sure how to discern that. And then the more obvious things are going to be things like, you know, if you are measuring estimated versus actuals, you're constantly going over budget and you're constantly falling um, outside of like a 10% margin of error. You have a lot of people working overtimes, evenings and weekends. There's a lot of unforeseen um, you know, work that needs to be done that's falling outside of business hours. You're constantly cannibalizing internal conversations and internal projects for unforeseen issues that come up with client work or deadlines are being moved consistently. If any of those things are happening on a consistent basis, it's a really good sign that there's too large of a delta between the assumptions that you're using to plan for the future and the reality that's occurring behind those assumptions. All right. Well, I, I have a feeling an awful lot of people who will end up listening to this podcast have experienced or you know are consistently experiencing uh, some of those things. So now let's get to okay. So so what do we do? Like what steps do we take? to get better at this or, or change, you know, what, what's a different process, I guess. Yeah. So I'll start, I want to talk a little bit about pricing models and then we'll, we'll jump into these, uh, these feedback loops that I think ultimately tie everything together. Okay. Um, I think the first exercise is to sit back and really ask what is the risk profile of the different kinds of work that we do inside the agency. Um, and well, I have a, a framework for the show notes called the agency pricing quadrant, which talks about the framework that I use with clients to help identify what is the ideal pricing model for a given product or service based on two things. The first is how valuable it is to the client or how valuable the client perceives it to be. And we spent tons of time in the industry talking about value and how to how to navigate that in the pricing conversation and how to try to capitalize on it. But the thing that no one's talking about is risk. And so the other important question is, how risky is this work? And when I talk about risk, what I mean is, how easy is it for us to predict the amount that it will cost us to deliver this to the client in terms of how much time it will take, right? Mm -hmm. And low risk work, I would define as we can consistently get to within 10% of what we thought it was going to take at the onset when we scope the project. So that requires a fairly mature service offering. Right, something that we've probably done a number of times that we probably have a pretty clear process for, that the client's needs fit very squarely within that framework, and that you know we have a, a reasonably experienced team that has done this kind of thing before. That would constitute low risk work. Then you have the spectrum that goes all the way to high risk work, and high risk work is defined by you know we it's very unlikely that we can predict what this is going to take. So some extreme examples of that would be. We are being asked to build a control system for a SpaceX rocket to land it on a barge in the middle of the ocean on a new programming language that's not very well supported. And no one's ever done this before, by the way. So it's like, how, how many hours is that going to take? <laughs> is it going to take 100,000? Is it going to take a million? Um, it's really hard to know because there's so many unknown unknowns. So how could you possibly scope that? The risk is just inherently so huge. And to compound that, 
the way you want to solve that problem is probably not by taking a waterfall approach. You probably want to use an agile approach and change the approach that you take to solving that problem based on what you're learning along the way. So that's an extreme example of like an incredibly uncertain set of work. So you want to map your projects somewhere along that spectrum from it's impossible to predict what it's going to take to I think we can get to within 10% pretty consistently. And then based on that, start to understand that if you can't predict what it's going to take, then it's a good opportunity to change the pricing model so you can share some of that risk with the client. And those pricing models tend to be anchored to time as opposed to deliverables. So selling hours, I know everybody likes to poo-poo on selling hours, but <laughs> the, re- the reality is you're getting paid for your time. So if it takes more or less hours, as long as you're managing that scope conversation properly and the SOW is structured properly, then you shouldn't end up eating free hours. So yes, you're limiting the upside that you can gain by being efficient, but you're also limiting the downside. And in a high-risk situation, that could be really important. But there's also for high value, high risk engagements like this large software development project that requires a lot of expertise. There are what I call abstracted time materials models that I think are really interesting and are being used by really successful firms. And the idea there is you're just abstracting away from individual hours to either larger time horizons and or larger groups of people. So a practical example of this would be that project for SpaceX, we're writing a control system. I might present the price to the client as, you know, this is going to take an indefinite amount of sprints. Let's call it, we're estimating this is anywhere from a thousand to a 2000 story point engagement. I want to lease you a expert control systems engineering team for $20,000 per two week sprint. They can move at a velocity of approximately 50 story points per sprint. And that's how we're going to work on this engagement. And so if it takes 50 sprints or it takes 100 sprints or it takes 200 sprints, it doesn't matter. We're getting paid by the sprint. And if the scope of that engagement is constantly changing as we learn new things, it's not a problem as long as we're managing priorities and managing the backlog properly. So we're still selling time in that engagement, but because we're abstracting away from the hour, we can often increase the value that we're capturing in the engagement by moving into these larger buckets of both time and and people. So that's, I think the first thing I want to present is consider for the things you can't put in a box, shifting your contract model to help you absorb that risk and share it with the client. I'll pause there. Okay. Thank you. So uh, the question that is coming, it's not really a question. It's more of a thought that um, I totally get what you're saying. It feels to me like that requires, and not this is not a bad thing. I, I just I'm curious what you think. That that requires a lot of really good communication with the client about progress, about where we are, what's happening, what we're learning, whatever it is, so they know something is happening. Is yes. that fair? Yes, absolutely. And this you raise a really good point, which is the way that account management happens with each pricing model. So whether it's a flat rate project or it's a value-based project or it's a it's an abstracted time materials project or it's a time materials project, the way that you have an account management conversation is different in all four of those quadrants, which is why I think it's so important to be crystal clear about which one of these you're using for each service 
Because I think we've probably both seen evidence of this or examples of this, of a firm that has a bunch of these things going on. And then the team's not actually really clear what is the value anchored to? What are we getting paid for? Are we getting paid for deliverables? Or are we getting paid for time? Because yes, it changes how you show up in that client relationship. It changes how you respond to something like a scope change or a change in the timeline because the implications of that are different based on what the pricing model is. So you're absolutely right in that it, that it will be something that will affect the process that you have around managing the client relationship. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. So um, that makes sense to me. I'm, um, I love this idea of sharing the risk, right? Of making sure that the client knows that there's too much unknown here. So we all need to go down this road into this adventure together and communicate effectively about how it's going, what we're learning. Um, but that also feels like as we're going through that and we are learning that that should potentially accelerate um, being able to deliver or, or at least have the conversation around, okay, now we know here's where we're going. So yeah. is there ever a shift in that with, we start out with one pricing model, but we shift to another once we have enough data? Yeah, absolutely. That That's certainly an option. And it's also very possible that a service, uh, engage, like a, a type of service that you sell within an agency or a consulting firm over time starts to shift because you go from having done very few of these types of engagements to having done a lot of them you go from having very little portfolio to having a lot of it. And so over time, that kind of moves from being a high risk piece of work to a low risk piece of work as you get more reps. So mm. it is totally um, common for engagements to start in this high risk nature. Maybe you're doing a discovery or you're doing a first phase to really scope out requirements or do some initial development. And then you're able to wrap your arms around the rest of it. But you raise, I think, I'm reading between the lines here, one of the concerns that I hear a lot about this, which is, well, the client doesn't want to take on the risk. It's a lot harder to sell if I'm asking them to share the risk. And that is a really great observation. And it brings up an important point, which is in order to sell time materials engagements or abstracted time materials engagements, the way that that has to happen is the first sale needs to be about the methodology. And so just to speak to that a little bit, if you and I were about to go into an engagement and you said, hey, Marcel, I need you to solve this big, complex problem for me. And there's a lot of uncertainty here. How much is that going to cost? If I come out and say, well, I can't tell you how much it's going to cost because I want to bill you by the hour, then immediately you're going to say, well, that sounds really risky. So the first thing that I need to talk about is, well, there's actually two ways that we could solve this problem, Diane. The first way is that you and I can sit here and we can make a bunch of assumptions about what we think the answer to your problem is going to be and deploy all of your budget and timeline against those assumptions. And if we get to the end and we find out that we are wrong, then all of that time and money will have been wasted and we won't get the outcome. But at least you'll know exactly what it costs. <laughs> the other way that we can solve this problem is that we can do a little bit of work at a time and adapt to the things that we learn along the way. And so it's harder to predict how much time it will take to get the outcome, but the likelihood that we're going to make some critical assumption 
and not be able to course correct along the way is dramatically lower. And the best part about that model is every time something changes, I don't have to pull up the contract and renegotiate the scope with you every time. So out of those two ways of working, which one do you think is most likely to lead to a successful outcome for you in this engagement? Mm. Yeah, the second one. Right. So what we first sold here is the methodology. And then it's just a question of following up with that by saying, well, here's a model that we can engage together in that allows us to work in that more fluid way. That's great. I, I am so glad that uh, that I asked the question and you addressed that because um, I, I think that is critical. And it really is about making sure that the client understands what's possible. You know, wh- we're the expert technically. So we don't, being the expert doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It means that we understand the process that we need to go through in order to be able to really serve them. That's exactly right. And you can also plant like, because the other concern that agencies will have is, well, what if they then go to another firm and the firm gives them a flat price and they go with that firm instead? But if you have that conversation properly, you'll be able to highlight that that's a pretty irresponsible thing for us to do. And so I'd be very weary of a firm that tries to tell you that they know exactly what it's going to take to solve this problem. Because you and I both agree that this is actually a very complex problem to solve. Right, right. Talk to me about feedback loops. Yeah. So the perfect segue. So this is the first kind of side tangent, which is maybe you can't scope things. So if you can't scope things, use a pricing model that allows you to embrace that and still protect yourself from downside. Now, in both scenarios, whether you're using that kind of a pricing model or a flat rate pricing scenario, the next thing is, okay, well, how do we get better at scoping? And one of the best ways to do that is to install feedback loops in the business. And a feedback loop, simply put, is feedback between our assumptions and reality. And I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this or reading between the lines. They're saying, that sounds a lot like time tracking. And you would be right. (laughs) So uh, we thought it was going to take us 100 hours to do this thing. It took us 200. That is a really important data point that we can then use to inform conversations with our team where we sit down and we pay attention to those outliers and say, you know, here's a project that took half as much time as we thought and the, pro- the client is thrilled. What can we learn from that? What can we extract from that that we can apply to other things to replicate that outcome? And here's a thing that didn't go at all the way we planned. It took us a lot more time than we thought it was going to. What can we learn from that? Where did things go different than we had planned? How can we adjust next time? And it's through that iterative cycle that we can start to close these significant gaps between the assumptions we make in reality. And to the extent that we can do that, we can scale better, faster, smoother, because we won't be planning to work 100 hours on something and then end up having to go find 200 out of our evenings and weekends or go bring in additional staff and incur additional costs to get things done, all of which is going to affect our bottom line. So at the highest level, that's really what feedback loops are about, is data to inform where we focus but really importantly, following that up with conversation so that we can materialize that into action and understanding among the team. Yeah, boy, I love that. That is great. I mean, I love feedback loops anyway, but that's why I was curious about this because um, there's so much, it, it's just doing that debrief and and keeping what works and either getting rid of or changing what didn't work so we continue to refine our processes. 
Yeah. Now, there's a couple of important things to get right around these feedback loops that I want to speak to for a moment. Okay. If I could. Sure. The first objection that I'll get to this is, well, that all sounds great, but time tracking. It sucks. Nobody wants to do it. My team yeah. hates it. I don't want to ask them to do it. The data is not good anyway. So let's talk about that first objection. And in most of the firms that are struggling with time tracking, there's one critical question that I ask, and the answer is almost always the same. What is the feedback loop between the time tracking data you collect from the team and the team itself? How often do they see that data reflected back to them? And how often are they involved in the conversations that happen around that data <laughs> and the decisions that get made based on that data? The answer is the almost answer never. Is, yeah. <laughs> never, right? The answer half the time is the leadership team being like, candidly, we're not even using it for anything. And I can't tell you, frankly, why we're collecting the data in the first place. <laughs> so that to me is of all the things we, you know, we spent six years in this industry helping dozens of agencies install and maintain time tracking systems. There's a ton of tactics ton of tools, a ton of you know gamification hacks, reporting hacks, discipline hacks that you can try to use to increase compliance. Nothing increases compliance in my experience more than just closing the loop. Yeah. Just showing the team, here's how we're using the data. Here's the kind of decisions that we're making. Here's the kinds of insights that we're gathering from this data and involving them in that conversation. And the simplest way to do that is this simple exercise of sitting down and looking at a client or a project and saying, Here's how much time we thought it was going to have, or we thought it was going to take. Here's how much time it actually took. What can we learn from this? It's really important for that conversation not to be disciplinary, but to be curiosity driven. And it's really important also for the leadership team to refrain from coming into that conversation, trying to direct what the outcomes should be, because to the extent that you can invite the team to come forward with their ideas it's much more likely that they're going to buy into the entire data collection process in the first place. And it's also much more likely that they're going to follow through on the actions that that conversation leads to in terms of how to improve process, in terms of how to tighten up um, these gaps, in terms of how to get better at estimation, at client management, at scope management, et cetera. Um, So that's really, really critical because as soon as we start to weaponize that data or try to use it to discipline people, it's going to have the opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that and um, what I always say is people don't like arbitrary. So if you're asking them to do something and they don't see the outcome or, you know, they they can't attach to why it matters, they just decide that it's totally arbitrary because it is. And and they don't do it. They become resentful. You don't get any information that you need. So, yeah, you have to back it up. Right. It has to be something that you're actually using and they can see that you're doing that. That's a really good point. That's right. And there's one last thing I want to mention around this, which is um, it ties back to one of the first things we talked about, which was how the engagement was scoped in the first place. And what I found is that when this kind of feedback loop is not in place and a firm is doing retrospectives or postmortems or just meeting on a regular basis to talk about these things, Absent this objective set of data, most of the conversation devolves into people arguing about what happened, as opposed to spending their time working together to decide how to move forward and get better. Oh, yeah. And so by having an objective set of data that says, here's what we expected at the start of the project, 
ideally in a way that is not that is not fraught with the problems that we talked about earlier where we set it up for failure right there's an objective agreed upon heuristic for here's how much time we thought this was going to happen and then here's here's how much time we tracked now everybody can agree okay that is what happened and then we can all get on the same side of the table and say what can we learn from this what ideas do we have to avoid this outcome next time or to replicate this outcome if it was a really good project and we came in under budget and everyone's thrilled so it's really solution focused and i love that you said talking about this shouldn't be punitive it, it should be curiosity it's exactly right what can we learn what can we do with this information and and when I say we, I mean we, right? That that all of us have input here because all of us experienced it. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, this is really, I'm so glad that we are having this conversation. Marcel, I so appreciate you sharing this information. I think this is critically important, especially as we move forward. And this is the kind of thing that so many of these agencies are struggling with when they don't need to be. So thank you for joining me and sharing this information. It's my pleasure, Diane. And I'll, I'll finish by saying that it's no secret that time tracking in particular has a bad rap. <laughs> I've never met anyone that you know wakes up in the morning and the first thing that they're excited to go do is fill out their timesheets. Nope. But I do think that a lot of the arguments against time tracking are not actually arguments against time tracking. They're misconceptions about what it means to track time. They're conflations of thinking of time tracking as being the same as or inherently related to things like billing for time, things like utilization targets that the team is held accountable to, things like time budgets on tasks or projects, um, things like timesheets, which are only one of several ways in which we can track time and create records of time that are helpful to install these feedback loops. And most of those are the result of people having experienced bad time practices being used for the wrong reasons in firms that they've worked in in the past. Right. And so, you know, I feel that there's a lot of work to do for people like myself who are really trying to modernize the way that agencies measure and improve their profitability and use these tools to their advantage to actually protect their team against having to work overtime, against having to work weekends, against having to be laid off the second that they lose a big client or they miss an RFP that they were really banking on. That should be the outcome. But unfortunately, historically, it's not been. And so I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth. And it's it's creating a lot of this, this friction and fear um, around things like time tracking that is making it difficult for everyone to experience the benefits of it being done well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, and will you let the listeners know how they can find you, please? Of course. Yeah, you can check uh, me out on LinkedIn. I'm Marcel Pedipa. I'm wearing a shirt with birds on it. I'm not hard to spot. And you can find more of our content. We have lots of blogs and podcast episodes at parakeeto.com. And we also have a free toolkit there that you can get access to that will teach you all about how to measure um, these kind of key metrics in your agency and install these feedback loops. That is awesome. Thank you. Like I said, I mean, thank you so much for sharing this information. And listeners, thank you. You are who we're doing this for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others 
at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at Lachifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.